I'm Elizabeth Ray. I'm Alistair Stevens. And Tom Cruise is Cole Trickle, the worst name I've ever heard in Days of Thunder. Cole Trickle. It's so bad. I wonder if it's going to stop being funny by the end of this episode. Let's find out together, shall Uh, we? Let's find out. Because we've already done a lot of the history for the creative team behind this movie, because they did Top Gun, you guys, Mm -hmm. and because it's the day after Christmas, and because Cole Trickle is one of the dumber names I've ever heard in a movie, (laughs) I thought we would start with a quick game, a quick rundown of the worst names in movie history as compiled in part by some random strangers on the internet. Oh, thanks, random strangers on the internet. So here's the game. I'm going to read the name and the actor and the movie, and you are simply going to tell me if this is a bad name that is stupid, a bad name that is good in as much as it suits the the subject matter, suits the movie itself, or it's secretly a good name. (laughs) I don't think you'll be using that last one. But let's find out. So, for example, we could okay. talk about everyone's, you know, fourth or fifth favorite Hufflepuff, Nymphadora Tonks. Nymphadora Tonks is a good name. <laughs> I don't know what you're Uh-oh. saying to me right now. <laughs> I think I see how this is going to go. Okay. <laughs> let's talk about Elliot Page in 2007's Juno, Juno McGuff. Terrible name. Bad yeah, name? Yeah, ba- bad name. Bad name that is bad. Juno is cool. McGuff after Juno. First of all, you never do two two syllable names. Everybody knows this. If you're a writer, if you're a writer then you know <laughs> that your names need to have different syllables in the they first do. and the last. Yes. Like that's just different best. stress patterns, yes. different footprints. Yeah. Yes. So Juno McGuff is bad. Except that it is supposed to be bad, so maybe it's the kind of bad that is good. Well, this is my question. Diablo Cody is creating a world Diablo of Cody, awkward all time great name. That's true actually. Right? Yes. <laughs> very cool name. Diablo very Cody, fair. very cool. Okay, so good or bad for Juno? Uh, for, the, for the subject of that film, for the tone of that yeah, film. For, for the tone, it is a bad that is good. Okay, I'll okay. take that. The next one, Point Break, 1991, Keanu Reeves plays Johnny Utah. <laughs> Johnny Utah is a terrible name. It's a bad name, but it's bad. It does not fit Point Break, which is a great movie in a which you should movie. watch. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Yeah. From Dead Poet Society in 1989, mm. God, I could have picked like seven, but let's do Josh Charles's character, shall we? Let's do Knox Overstreet. <laughs> Knox Overstreet. Knox Overstreet. <laughs> uh, Probably the worst name in a film replete yeah, with bad names. I think that one is bad. It is It is cool in a different film. Like if Knox Overstreet was a character in, say, Scott Pilgrim versus the World, well, I'd be like, neat. Sure. If but, this character existed in a cartoon world. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. If there was like, you know, some anthropomorphic talking animals alongside him. Sure. Which, I mean, Dead Poet Society is not a million miles away from that. <laughs> Let's move on to an all-time classic, an all-time banger. From the world is not enough. In 1999, Denise Richards is Dr. Christmas Jones. (gasps) Dr. Christmas Jones (laughs) is terrible. I could have picked Um, hundreds from the Bond Is it just to get the joke? Is it just to get... It has to be, right? Christmas only comes once a year? It has to be. That was the first sex joke I ever got. (laughs) <laughs> and started laughing really hard. My parents both stared at me awkwardly. And I was you like, were I, absolutely uh, the target audience yeah. for that. Yeah. Uh, uh, Good name? Bad name in the Christmas Bond tradition Jones. that fits? It's the Jones that is boring. Like, Christmas is kind of fun and funny. Sure. But it might as well be like Smith. Like, Smith and Jones. You know what I mean? It's just too... I think I'm gonna the say bad. tradition bad of bad. pairing an unusual name with a very common name is kind of... It's tropey, but I feel that writers do that. Not infrequently, though rarely it must be said in Bond. What mm-hmm. is your favorite Bond name? Can you can you summon one right now? Pussy Galore. 
it ha- kind of has to be I mean, pussy, it has galore, to be pussy galore, right? Yeah. Molly Warmflash. That's, <laughs> That's a terrible. real one. Terrible. <laughs> I mean, Money Penny is a great name. Sure. What's sure. your first name? Miss. <laughs> <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> Let's move on and change gears a little bit to Transformers Age of Extinction from 2014, where Mark Wahlberg seriously plays a character called Cade Yeager. Cade Yeager is good bad. It's that's, oh, that's yeah? a, or a bad good or whatever it is. Yeah, that's correct for Transformers. That's the right kind of bad sure, name. Sure. Also, he's like a farmer or something too, right? He's like a... No, I believe... That Mechanic? he's actually like, yeah, no, but he's like an engineer. He's like a, oh. a borderline physicist, genius engineer, I believe. <laughs> borderline That's physicist, genius do. engineer, Mark Wahlberg. Of course, Wahlberg. naturally, yeah. you hire Marky Excellent Mark casting. to play intelligence. <laughs> yeah, clearly. Okay. The last one that I have here is kind of a cheat because it, it's clearly a joke in the film, but it is also the worst thing that has happened on screen in a long, long time. And it's particularly bad because it happens to an actress that we really like. Do you remember Minka Kelly? In the closing moments of 500 Days of Summer. No. After Joseph Gordon-Levitt has finally broken up with Zoe Deschanel mm-hmm. and moved on from Summer. Right. Do you get it? Do you see? I, it's, yeah, it must He meets be. the girl in the elevator who introduces herself as... It has to be autumn, right? Exactly. Or spring? <laughs> yes. Course, no, it's April. Autumn. Of course it is. <laughs> and okay, rim sure. shot and we're out to the credits. Ugh. Good, bad? Bad, bad? I mean, that was a movie that didn't all like people were confused as to whether or not we were supposed to know that this guy was a bad guy but i think that name helped tip the you know like like show the hand like no 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 huh we know that this guy is kind of a loser i don't think that the film agrees with you you don't think the film knows that i don't think that the film necessarily knows that he ends the movie in a bad place too i think that the film's Uh, (laughs) welcome to our joseph gordon levitt cast yeah I think that 500 Days of Summer believes that his arc is a redemption arc and not a regression oh, to the no. mean. That it's not just him starting over exactly the same thing again. But honestly, it has been a very long time since I've seen that film. So Okay, fair maybe enough. Maybe we should watch that for a uh, bonus episode over on the Patreon. Maybe so. Maybe well- not. <laughs> <laughs> so with all of that in mind, mm-hmm. how does Cole Trickle stand for you? It's so terrible. Like as soon as I saw the name, because I think I saw it first on his helmet, right? Yeah, that is yeah. where you see it first. And I was just like, oh, no. That's, like, oh, that's no, your mechanics have played a trick on you. Yes, oh, Cole no. Trickle. It's the trickle. Cole is actually a cool name that I've always liked. But that's the problem, right? Is that Cole is maybe like a beat too cool for this guy. For yeah, this world of, this you know, guy. rowdies sure. and rusties yeah. and whatever. Yeah, right? like, he could have been a Cody. Yeah. Cole is maybe right. just a <laughs> bit good. And buddy and Harry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you're right. So what's your experience and your history with NASCAR racing? Almost none, I have okay. to say. Yeah. So when I lived in Wisconsin, I hung out with uh, a bunch of people who were like farmers and mechanics and blue collar rural people uh, and learned a lot and had a lot of fun ATVing in the backwoods and getting trucks stuck in mud and <laughs> big bonfires and Miller Lite and had a good time. Uh, and once I went to somebody's cousin's house or something. And they were all watching NASCAR. And I just got bored really immediately. Like, it just didn't take long at all. I also had an uncle for a little while named Racin' Ron, who used to not drive NASCAR, but the same, like, circuit. What are they called? Sure. Circuit racing? Like, stock car racing. Stock yeah. car racing, yeah. yeah. He used to do that. And so I went and saw him race once. Although, they shouldn't even really call it stock car racing, because none of these cars are stock anymore. I think that this anymore. was a stock car, either. <laughs> Just like closed wheel racing, right? Like where the body closed of the... Closed wheel. Closed wheel as opposed to open wheel like Formula One. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 
Definitely. So that's that's it. Yeah, I saw a little bit of it, when, but always, you know, my friend who was up there at the time, uh, my friend Matt was saying that I hate NASCAR because, you know, what's coming up next? I think it's going to be a left. Oh, uh, it's another left. Oh, look, it's another left. Yeah. And I do feel that way. Like, it's just circuit race. Circuit racing, I want to call it, is just... Circuit racing might be a particular... I have no idea. Subdivision. I mean, I don't all know. races except like rallycross, I guess, are circuit racing. So I have no idea. <laughs> but I think that it is... Uh, I didn't know very much about it, but watching this movie, I have probably eight different notes that are like, what the fuck is NASCAR? <laughs> What are we doing? I'm not sure which part you're not understanding. Oh, right. Okay. So it's not that you're not getting (laughs) it. No, no, no. I get it. But how? How how are we still doing it? It's so like, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's it's not. I don't have any particular affection for NASCAR and I've never Mm -hmm. really gotten into the sport. But the idea that it takes the most exciting parts of other races, that is to say high speed corners and overtaking and turns that into a four hour extravaganza. So it's kind of like an endurance race. It has elements of those kind of very long form races like Le Mans or like, the, you know, the Dakar Rally or things like that. But it's coupled with, yeah, this super high intensity. It looks maybe a little simple from the stands. It certainly looks simple on TV. Yeah. But I think the film actually manages to communicate this really effectively. When you are in those cars and you are going 170, 190, 210 miles an hour, And yeah, you know exactly where the track is going, but you are trying to anticipate all of the random chaos that is happening around you. I was going to say, the thing is that they like run into each other on purpose. Yeah. That's that's the part that I can't... Rubbin is racing. I'm going to put this guy into the wall. I'm like, that is not... I, I, mean, I don't know. It that just is was uncomfortable for me. I mean, this yeah. is the thing, right? And the, <laughs> I know that it's a movie and we need the wrecks and crashes to look like as dramatic as possible, but holy but, smokes. Yeah, also in real life, there are wrecks and crashes that yeah. look super dramatic. Yeah. I'm sure. No, if Formula One is the soccer of the motorsport world, right? That mm-hmm. is to say that it takes elegance, it takes precision, and it's oftentimes quite boring in its, in its like middle third, then NASCAR yeah. is the American football of motorsport. It is just brutal and immediate and dangerous to all involved yeah hmm interesting so this film hasn't moved the needle for you in terms of your appreciation of this particular form of motorsport oh it pushed it down i think oh really oh yeah wow it's just such a bully's sport it's not a gentleman's sport it is not a gentleman's sport. and i just don't dig that that's not what i'm here for sure with that, mm. let's get into the trailer game and then start talking about the yes. lunatic history of this sure. particular film. It's my turn for the trailer game this week. So wish me luck. Good luck. Oh, man, you want to see some cars go fast? These cars go fast, and not in like a Tracy Chapman fast car kind of way, but in a race around a big ring fast car kind of way. You want to see Tom Cruise go at enormous speed again? You liked it the first time? Let's do it all over. This time with four wheels steadily on the ground. Top Gun, this is Top Gear. Tom Cruise, Robert Duvall, Randy Quaid, and that woman from the AMC ads who wears the shiny, shiny suit because in a place like this, heartbreak feels good. (laughs) This summer, cars go fast! <laughs> I wish that we had video of your face just then. It oh, was yeah. just, yeah, really unhinged for a moment. I'm that was fun. glad that we don't. <laughs> so, previously on The Last Star in Hollywood, obviously, Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson, Mr. Outside, Mr. Inside, Hollywood producers par excellence, team up with former commercial director Tony Scott, brother of Ridley, to make the swaggeringly macho but actually really very good. Top Gun. Yes. It is a, checks notes, very popular film. 
The team goes on from Top Gun to direct Beverly Hills Cop 2 with Eddie Murphy, a movie that makes $300 million off of a budget of $27 million, but it isn't quite the success of the original 1984 film. The critical response is mixed, too, and people are wondering if the original film needed a sequel that added so little new to the recipe. Here, here. Yeah, you know, we might circle back around to that at the end of this week's <laughs> podcast. Normally, this is the point in the proceedings where I talk about a screenwriter working alone in an artist's garret with a stub of a candle and a wish of a hope of a dream that they can write 90 pages of a screenplay and sell it for lots of money. But that's not where this film starts. This film starts, obviously, with Paul Newman, who, Whoa. on the set of The Color of Money, introduced Tom Cruise to stock car racing. <laughs> Weird. Okay, that's Newman interesting. Newman has been a racer yeah. by that point for like 15 years. That's He's right, we huge talked into about it. that. Yeah. yeah, okay. Cruz gets into it, decides that it's very visceral, very immediate, very cinematic, and decides uh, himself okay. that someone ought to make a film about it, and it might as well be him. I saw his story by credit. Yeah. yeah. He conceives of the original story in part. That's a complicated story, too. Sure. But he goes back to producers Brookheimer and Simpson and says that they should start developing the film, which they do. Hollywood veteran screenwriter Donald Stewart is hired to write a draft. He works with Cruz, and he claims, even today, that the story that he laid out, the first draft that he wrote, is still the heart of the film, though, of course, he is now uncredited. Warren mm -hmm. Scarron, whose uncredited work saved Top Gun, is said to have written seven subsequent drafts for this film, but none of those are quite right, and he doesn't get credit either. Robert Town who was a long-standing screenwriter, kind of a legend in the business, a known script doctor. He had written the script for Polanski's Chinatown and won an Academy oh, Award yeah, for it, right? Sure. He's brought in to write and is now the only credited screenwriter, though, as you say. Cruz also gets a story by credit. Mm. But even at this point, as the rough shape of the story is coming into view, Cruz doesn't like it. Simpson doesn't like it. Brookheimer doesn't like it. It's not doing what they need it to do. And they are, it must be said at this point, kind of skeptical about how much you really need a script to make a movie. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> You're anticipating where this is going. Yeah. The film was originally called Born to Run, then Daytona. They started shooting Days of Thunder on December 11th of 1989, just before the opening of Born on the Fourth of July, and two days after Cruz had filed for divorce from his first wife, Mimi Rogers. Hmm. The theatrical opening was scheduled for May 23rd, 1990, Memorial Day weekend. They did not, sure. when they started shooting, have a finished script. Wow. So the production begins in Charlotte, North Carolina. Shots are taking forever to set up and then being scrapped. Robert Town, the screenwriter, takes it on himself to build a barn for a sequence that will take place in a barn. He doesn't like the barn that is built, so he tears the barn down and builds another one and then cuts that sequence from the film entirely. Oh, no! Crew members are already, within the first two weeks, working 18 or 20-hour days, Not cool. racking up enormous amounts of overtime. No, well, these are, these are okay. union guys. Okay, they are making say, their money. Absolutely. The union. Yes. But already, two weeks in, the project is bleeding time and money. Yeah. They move production to Daytona and Florida in late January to shoot the Daytona 500, and the production takes over that town. The producers start throwing elaborate parties at which co-eds and tourists are invited to hang out with Simpson and Brookheimer with the promise that, who knows, you might even meet Tom Cruise. Brookheimer, Simpson, Town, and Scott are arguing publicly, are arguing incessantly. They spend almost half a million dollars of the movie's budget building a gym for the producers to use so that they can invite women in off the beach and work out with them. What? It's gross. This is horrible. Yes. 
The initial budget of $35 million, which is already a lot, is doubled. Then cut back when Cruise fails to win the Academy Award for Rain Man. This is also, we should note, Tom Cruise's first major payday. He gets $9 million for this film, plus percentage points on the back end. When they can get the stars to align and get a camera in a position with a light nearby, they can right. shoot fleeting sequences, particularly within the cars, which is very technically demanding. Mm -hmm. But the script is being rewritten so often that no one can remember their lines, they resort to taping new lines to the dashboard of the car that Cruz is driving. Oh, no. But taking your eyes off the road at yeah. 120 miles an hour causes him to actually crash into the track siding. And they instead, from that point, have Robert Town feed him lines through an earpiece. Simpson demands a part in the film, despite the fact that he is not an actor, and then demands another part for a girl that he meets on the beach. Oh, this is awful. He dates that girl for a while. She eventually breaks up with him because of his remarkable and Herculean drug use. Yes. She then marries Tony Scott in 1994, Whoa. and they are together for the rest of his life. Wow. Cruz doesn't listen to the race consultant who tells him that NASCAR stock cars are built to only turn left. So after losing position on the track, tried to turn right and immediately hit the wall, destroying a $100,000 camera mounted to the car. Uh-oh. On... I'm sorry, these cars can't turn right? They can turn right, but they're not as good at turning right. Okay. The whole car is configured to turn left. All right. Yeah. You can actually see it in the movie when they're leaving their pit lane. Mm -hmm. The way that you have to wrestle the car to the yes, right out yes. of the pit lane. Yeah. <laughs> I wondered. I was like, why are they pushing this car? That is, is that a okay? feature, not a bug. <laughs> but it is a weird one. <laughs> okay. All right. So things are absolutely out of control. The shoot is supposed to be done by the middle of February, but it wears on and on and on. The release date is pushed back from the clutch Memorial Day weekend release window mm -hmm. to June 27th. Which is nothing. Losing all of that momentum. Yeah. Principal photography finally finishes in the second week of May, giving the production five weeks to edit the movie, oh as opposed to the five months bare minimum yeah. that it would usually take. And that's without taking into account a very minor insight. It turns out that when they were shooting at Daytona back in February, no one thought to get footage of Tom Cruise's car crossing the finish line. <laughs> So at the cost of more than a million dollars, no. at the very beginning of June, yeah. they get Cruz back to Florida, back in the car, and they shoot the footage that they need. By the time this haphazard stuck together with, with sticky tape and Elmer's glue movie finally makes it into the theaters, it would have to have made $100 million back to even have a hope of breaking even. Mm. And here's perhaps the surprising part. It does. Wow. It takes $160 million at the international box office, but the very modest profit and the extremely mixed critical response conspired with the tales of what happened on the set to forge Days of Thunder's real lasting legacy, the end of the producer-led movie in Hollywood. Wow, okay. So to understand this, we have to go back in time. Originally, the start of Hollywood, the director is the artist behind the camera, crafting movies with as much technical skill as creative flair. They are the first and last word on set about what goes into the film. But then we get to the rise of the studio system. We get to the golden age of Hollywood and producers take over as the most powerful force in the industry. They're picking up scripts. They're hiring directors. They're guiding productions and shaping the finished product. They are creating arcs for their actor's career. And then the pendulum begins to swing back in the 1960s with the advent of new Hollywood and right. the rise of the new auteur director. 
And as we mentioned last week, the story goes that this comes to a shattering end in 1980 with the release of Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate, a disastrous flop, a flop so bad that it sinks United Artists, a studio that has at that point been in business for 60 years. And of course, the money behind the studios looks at that disaster and decides these directors can't be trusted. We need to take the power away from these auteurs and give it to people who really know what they're doing with a checkbook. People like, for example, Brookheimer and Simpson. Mm -hmm. So throughout the 1980s, it is studio producers who are directing the movement of the industry. It is studio producers who are influencing individual movies, particularly at that blockbuster level. All of that ends with Days of Thunder. Wow. Simpson and Brookheimer will continue to work through the 90s, at least until Simpson's death in 1996, but they would be subordinate to the directors that they worked under. And Jerry Brookheimer in particular would go on to make some really great films. Tony Scott would go on to make the best and most successful movies of his career, including The Last Boy Scout and True Romance and Crimson Tide and Enemy of the State. Tony Scott, we should note, tragically takes his own life in August of 2012 Mm. at the age of 68. So all of this is a part of this shift in power in Hollywood, returning directors to the forefront of production, leading to the auteur revolution of the 1990s. And that's where we are now. Directors definitely still have all the power in Hollywood. Of course, I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> we have seen the pendulum swing back again, yes. kind of around 2010. We have the arrival of Iron Man in 2008, and then the sale of Lucasfilm to Disney in 2012, and... Well, we're back to producers again. We are back to studios hiring and firing directors as part of a larger plan and not giving individual artists the opportunity to craft these films. And it'll change. It'll swing back again as it always has and always will. But right now, we're maybe in something of a creative malaise. Mm. The only comfort we have is that this too shall pass. (laughs) What I think this whole process proves, though, and this film more than most is that writers are really the power behind the throne. Writers are the alpha and omega in Hollywood because you cannot make a good movie out of a bad script or, in this case, basically no script at all. Yeah. Cruz will go on to work with Towns again on The Firm in 1993 and the first two Mission Impossible movies in 1996 and 2000, one of which is very good. The other is Mission Impossible too. His divorce <laughs> from Mimi Rogers is finalized in February of 1990, right in the middle of filming and right around the time that Cruz meets his co-star, Nicole Kidman. In mm-hmm. 1995, Cruz will tell Vanity Fair, rather uncomfortably, that his response upon meeting Kidman was, quote, instant lust. She was 23, he was 28. The two begin dating through the rest of the shoot. They marry on Christmas Eve 1990, six months after Days of Thunder hits theaters. They will work together only twice more in Ron Howard's 1992 Far and Away, which we will cover next week. I didn't know that was Ron Howard. Okay. Ron Howard's Far and Away. It does make a lot of sense. (laughs) When you look at the running time and then the plot synopsis, you think, yes, this is a Ron Howard joint. (laughs) And of course, they work together in Stanley Kubrick's 1999 erotic thriller, shall we say? Eyes Wide Shut, which Uh appropriately enough, we are going to cover on Valentine's Day 2024. So let's talk a little about Nicole Kidman. Her father, Anthony, was a biochemist, a clinical psychologist and author. Her mother, Janelle, was a nursing instructor and edited her husband's books. Her father was a grad student at the University of Hawaii at Manoa when she was born. So she had, from birth, both Australian and American citizenship. Cool. The family moves to Washington, D.C. for a little while, then returns to Australia, where Kidman grows up in Sydney. She attends the Philip Street Theatre as a teenager alongside the brilliant Naomi Watts, Mm. who is, for the record, not her sister, 
not her babysitter. <laughs> These are weird rumors oh, that are all I've over the internet. I've never heard either, but okay. Yeah. Sometimes you, sometimes you will hear babysitter, sometimes you will hear maid. Kidman begins working in film in 1983, appearing in Bush Christmas and the well-received kid adventure movie BMX Bandits. In 1989, she appears with Sam Neill and Billy Zane in the Australian movie Dead Calm, which is enough of a hit that it gets her international recognition. She comes to the US and is cast in Days of Thunder. And of course, we'll have the opportunity to talk about her a lot over the next seven weeks here on the podcast, because even when she is not starring on screen alongside Tom Cruise, she is a very large part of his life. And we might even get to talk about her greatest role, the woman in the uh, silver sparkle pinstripes who just loves <laughs> AMC movie theaters. Do you hate that? Ad, I don't hate the way that it. I know hate that, that people hate it. And I just like, it's fine to me. I don't understand why people hate it so much. Like, it's cheesy, sure. But that's kind of what you expect, right? It's sincerity, isn't it? Isn't sincerity oh. the anathema of youth? Like, <laughs> <laughs> goodness. Can we gird ourselves with sufficient irony to make it through the day? I do understand the impulse, let me tell you. No, the reason that I ask is that I secretly like it too. I think it's really good. Of course and I you think do. she's brilliant in it. She's lovely. Yeah. I, I think that she's great. I have nothing bad to say about Nicole Kidman. The only thing that I, I would maybe say is that I loved Moulin Rouge so much, and now I can't watch it because she's so breathy in it. It drives me a little bit crazy. <laughs> but not as crazy as Ewan McGregor drives me. So I don't know. That's maybe just a film of its time. Ma yeah. yeah. Maybe you just had to be 15 when it came out or it's whatever possible. it was. 16 yeah. maybe? Yeah, I think 16 when it came out. Billy Ray, the writer of that AMC ad, says that he has a new one coming out next year. He also says that Heartbreak Feels Good in a Place Like This is the best line that he has ever written. Which, it is okay. Good. It is it, good. Uh, you know, like, you okay. can't argue. Yeah. 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 The rest of the cast of this film is, of course, like, weirdly spectacular. It is a weirdly stacked cast. It's stacked, cast. yeah. Although, Robert, sorry. although, I feel that none of these characters are, are well, are characters. They're all so underbaked. Like, if the actors weren't there, they could all be the same guy. They're such cardboard cutouts, which makes sense now that you tell me there was basically no script. Yeah. You can find vestigial elements of some of those early drafts all over this film. I think, right, there's a version of this film that is about the death of a racer at the Daytona 500 last year. This right? is Buddy, right? They're talking about Buddy's exactly car. Exactly right. Yeah. Which is yeah. clearly supposed to give us like some kind of motive force for Harry at the beginning of the film. It's clearly supposed to be significant to the sport as a whole. Yes. John C. Riley's standing right there playing his son. His son, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. So we spend maybe five minutes setting that up at the beginning of the film. But that is not what it this film is about. doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. So we have a weird orphaned scene right at the end of the movie where we kind of touch on it again as though we are bringing closure to a story that's been running this whole time. But we aren't. And yeah. it hasn't. And nothing is there. And that is what the film is. It is this Frankenstein's monster of plot and subplot kind of cobbled together. Yeah. But ultimately... We get nothing. There's this very little left at the end. Yeah. Which very I, little heart to the film. Exactly right. And no emotional arc, right? Right. Yeah. Which the is, closest is, I, I like the line that Cruz has, or, or Cole Trickle has at the end. <laughs> Still where, funny. Good. Right, Check it's in. All right. terrible. That's a terrible name. <laughs> anyway, where he says something along the lines of, I'm more afraid of being nothing than I am of being hurt. Yes. Yes. Which yes. is... Great, actually, except, it could be. yeah, except that, that I didn't follow that story. Yeah, there, that story wasn't there. Yeah. But it's a good one. It is. I, and the concept, I think, in general is interesting when he first gets there, too, where he's like, I need a place where a racer can stand out as opposed to the car standing out, which right. is something I understand because of Formula One. Exactly right. I love Formula One yeah. and I get it. Like, that's my favorite driver is George Russell. 
He drives for Mercedes now. You see him drive for Williams, and he's just he's second lost. to last he's at the back of the every pack. Right. every right. single time. Yeah, which is why every Formula One race is actually five or six different races yes. that all happen to be going on on the track at the same time. Absolutely, right. absolutely. So I understood that, and but then that, I've... of course, is the appeal of stock car racing. In principle, right? Like in principle. The idea mm-hmm. that all of these cars are the same, and of course, they're not now. They used to be. The idea of stock car is that you would buy a car off the lot and use that to race without any wow. modification. So, of course, car companies started making special souped-up versions of their cars that still looked the same, yeah. that they would sell off the lot, and so on and so on. It's a classic you know, technological arms race, just as Formula One has had, too. Mm-hmm. But the idea that these cars are basically the same and that it is the skill of the driver and the pit crew that gets you through the race. That is a good idea. That is, is a strong yeah, idea. It's interesting. Yeah. But yeah, not but connected. But we don't get anything with it. We get one bad pit, which is interesting, and then it's never talked about. Right. So nothing was done there. I just don't feel that I see coal trickle. Uh, it's terrible. <laughs> uh, grow as a driver. I, I, I don't see that. I see him. Yeah. Or if he does, right, it's in leaps and bounds. If he does, it's it's not growth. It's just a sudden transformation yes. into something else. Yes, then yeah. a sudden aggression, and then he's right back again. It, yeah, it's yeah. not it's not good there sports is, storytelling. The narrative around Days of Thunder is, oh my God, the film was so bad that it destroyed the production system in Hollywood. And that's obviously not true, right? This film no. is not disastrous, no. and it made back its money. The problem was the production story that I've already told. Interesting. The yeah. film itself, though falls at the first hurdle. It is fundamentally narratively incoherent. Yes. And just mediocre at best. Yeah. Which leaves you with a collection of moments, all of which I think are at least kind of good. Yeah. Many of which are really good. Okay. But you could be watching a supercut of, you know, a 10-hour miniseries for all the continuity Mm, that there is between scenes and between moments. Yeah, I hear you. And just like this film, we're jumping ahead with no continuity at all. So let's get back to the cast. I want to talk about uh, Robert Duvall just a little. He is, of course, a legend. Four nominations for Best Supporting Actor, three for Best Actor, including a win in 1984 for Tender Mercies. He's probably best known, of course, for The Godfather. But he'll work again with Cruz in Jack Reacher in 2012. Because, yes, the man that looked that old in 1990 is somehow still alive and acting in 2012. Uh. Are you looking forward to the Jack Reacher? I have to be honest with you. I don't know what a Jack Reacher is. <laughs> I I thought that he was the same as a Jack Ryan. Oh no, no. But I have recently learned that that is not yeah. true and Jack I don't Ryan know what either of Crichton. them are. Yeah. Clancy. Cr- no, not Crichton. Clancy. Clancy. Good yeah. lord. Yeah. Jack Ryan, Jack Reacher, Tom I Clancy. Thought <laughs> it w- right? Yeah. John Krasinski playing Jack and Giant. Exactly. It's all too much and I don't know and boy movies. Boy movies all. Boy movies all. Yeah. We'll find out a lot more. I do know that the villain in the first Jack Reacher, I think, is Werner Herzog. So wow. that's going to be interesting. That is least. interesting. Okay. Let's talk about Randy Quaid, shall we? Randy Quaid has worked in almost 100 movies, including The Last Picture Show, Midnight Express that we mentioned last week. It's always Independence Day for me. The National Lampoon Vacation Series, and yeah, a taught little character drama called Independence (laughs) Day. It's real good. Great movie, by the way. It's a great movie. Great movie. I think that Quaid is real good in this film. I do too. He's not doing his usual shtick either. Yeah, Yeah. this kind of unlikable, schlubby kind of (laughs) used car salesman, right? Very much so. It's really good. I like that. Yeah, with the chip on his shoulder. That's nice. Something to prove. Carrie Elwes, meanwhile, is a stone-cold legend. He breaks out in (laughs) 1987's The Princess Bride, then goes on to play the Val Kilmer analog in Hot Shots, which is funny because, of course, he is playing the Val Kilmer analog 
in this film too? I did not know that, and I'm thrilled. Oh no, did you forget that I, he was in I Hot did Shots? forget, <gasps> yeah. Oh, we're just going to have to end up watching Hot Shots. I think no that we are. What. It's yeah. going to happen one of these days. He's in Bram Stoker's Dracula. He's in, of course, Robin Hood Men in Tights. He's in Twister. He's in the Saw movies, which I have not and will not see. And of course, most notably, he's in A Castle for Christmas with Brooke Shields in 2021. <laughs> Which is kind of cute, y'all. It's, it's kind of cute. It's not bad. He does a nice Scottish accent through it, too. And you know, you're particular about this. I am. So, I am. okay, I like that. He will work again with Tom Cruise in 2023 in Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. And Carrie Elwes, wow. I have to tell you, is literally the only thing that makes me even a little bit interested in watching Zack Snyder's Screw You Guys, I'll Make My Own Star Wars Rebel Moon. Oh, no, that's oh. not even true because Corey Stoll is in that film, too. I do love a Corey Stoll. I <laughs> they are love both. Corey Stoll. To I manage don't think I can watch Rebel Moon, though. They are both like 50th in the cast list. Yeah. But maybe we'll just watch their scenes on like the YouTube. Corey and Carrie together again Corey for the first Carrie. time. <laughs> yeah, we will have to find their scenes for sure. Yeah. Oh, I like them both. <laughs> so the cast is really fantastic, mm-hmm. I think. But yeah, disconnected from one another. Yeah. A lot of really great character actor work i love when scott slows down and i think that this actually does show a real evolution in his style from top gun we can just have dialogue sequences now he can just plant the camera and let these characters act against one another we only get it a couple i have of times. to say i don't remember that from this film but i believe you in the trailer right before we get in the, the trailer right before the yeah, cop comes yeah, yeah. yeah we get a couple scenes in that trailer it wasn't until they got pulled over that i realized they were in a trailer by the way isn't that great I guess it is. I kind yeah. of really like that. I, I thought they were in a dive bar or something. I, didn't, I don't know where I thought they were. I wasn't really thinking about it. It felt like a magic trick. Yeah. It felt like, yeah, we're hanging out behind the garage. We're hanging right. out in Harry's right. office at the garage or whatever. Yeah. But no, yeah, the, the reveal that we're in the trailer was, I think, pretty good, followed by maybe the worst moment in the entire film. I don't think that moment was as bad as the callback to that moment with Nicole That's Kidman. extremely fair. That was the, that was the nadir I'm, of I the film. I think maybe kind of counting those two moments as one. Yeah, yes, absolutely. both bad. This movie is also, lastly, just a little segue into mm-hmm. our beat-by-beat beat breakdown of this plot. This movie is also the inspiration for one of the best episodes of The Simpsons, Saturdays of Thunder, where Homer realizes that he's a bad father and has to take an interest in Bart's hobby, which this week is soapbox derby racing. Okay. It's really pretty good. It is like a classic season three Simpsons episode. You will, of it. course, have to ignore a couple of gags about what a good father and what a good man Bill Cosby is. Oof. But, yeah. you know, 1991. But we thought that then. We yeah. thought that then. Yeah. We didn't know okay. yet. Let's get into the beat by beat then. Let's open on some sepia-saturated shots of the track at Daytona. And how much is it's this so movie orange. just Top Gun when it's we start? It's just Top Gun when you it's start. It's 100%. <laughs> Y'all are here for Top Gun? This is kind of going to be like Top Gun. Are you ready? And I was like, I guess I am ready. Okay. I guess I am. Although, yeah. The- but for some reason, the opening sequence of Top Gun is one of my very favorites. It's so good and compelling. Well, because and what this one doesn't do anything. Because what we're doing in the opening sequence of Top Gun is building a narrative structure. We are showing you how this carrier operates. Yeah, we're doing it like very organically. We're, mm-hmm. we're really using montage as it ought to be used, yes. according to the Russians. <laughs> this opening is not replicating that kind of narrative structure no. at all. It's just check out NASCAR racing. Yes. Check it out; these cars go real fast. Look at this oval. Lots track. of people come they see go it. Fast, yeah. Confederate flags and skull chewing tobacco advertisements. It's the worst kind of America, in my opinion. Is it a problem here in 2023 that the film does not go any distance at all to critique that kind of flag-waving Confederate South, right? definitely. Just don't have it there. Just omit it. 
And I, I don't understand. Is it fan service to the NASCAR people that they feel seen in this movie that is not about I them in any way? I don't know that it's NASCAR fan service as much as it's just NASCAR. As much as it's just they literally went to Daytona and filmed the 500. They literally had oh. cars on the track going around with cameras mounted. So all of that stuff is oh. basically real. There are a couple of insert shots that we pick up, as yeah, I said, at the beginning of June of 1990. That makes terrible sense, and I hate it. But yeah. And yeah, I would have omitted it. I would a not. lot of it is, yeah. is real life. I would life. have lost it in the edit, I think. But what you get on the other side of that, I think, is a real kind of visceral authenticity. And the thing that Tony Scott can do better than perhaps anyone else in cinema history mm. is shoot vehicles going real fast. Like, yeah, He true. manages to communicate speed True. In a way that, as we discussed at the beginning of the show, watching NASCAR on television does not communicate speed. Honestly, one of the questions I had while I was watching it was how fast do these cars go? Because it does seem really fast. But when I have seen a little bit of NASCAR on TV, yeah. it doesn't seem that speedy. The tracks vary in size. So the severity of the corners changes. The smallest, oh, shortest track is about a half mile and the longest is about two miles. Okay. So it's going to vary. I wondered about that because then they were like, oh, this is the one difficult turn. I was like, it's an oval. I don't it's understand. Oftentimes not an oval. Is it the grading? It's, it is the grading. It is, you know, where it is on the track. And yeah, I mean, the the track is not symmetrical. It is not just a simple oval. It is usually like a squished oval. One side will be flat to give you a long straightaway. You'll have two balanced corners huh. and then you'll have one sharper corner. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, fair enough. But I mean, basically an oval. <laughs> <laughs> It's not a the Monaco Grand Prix. Yes, exactly. Yes. exactly. <laughs> the uh, race pace for most NASCAR events is between 170 and 190 miles an hour. That's These fast. cars, of course, did not go that fast. Yeah. They did go 120 miles an hour. That's pretty damn fast. What it's is the fastest you have speedy. ever driven in a vehicle or been in a vehicle that was someone else was driving? In a car on the ground? I'm, I'm yeah, allowed to discount being yeah, yeah. a jet no, no, airplane. No, no, no. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, like, probably 90. <laughs> I lived for a while in Germany, and yeah. of course, my stepfather at the time was very enthusiastic about driving quickly and sure, used to actually race rally cars. And yeah, Ooh. when you're on the Autobahn and there is no speed limit, he would take our, I don't even remember what kind of car it was now. It was a long time ago. It was actually not long <laughs> after uh, Days of Thunder came out. But yeah, I, I remember being 90, maybe 100. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you, I know, have a real need for speed well. to point a phrase. <laughs> I it, I have lost some of it as I have matured uh, gracefully, I'm sure. But yes, when I was probably around 18 or something, uh, I would often take mine up until the governor kicked in, which was at 110. So wow. and this was just in Wisconsin. And I would take those stinking back roads, those like county roads, county H. I would drive from the Dells into Reedsburg. At about 80 the whole way, which is insane to me now. Yeah. I would never. Have you ever tried track driving? I've never tried it. I would like to, yeah, though. There I, was I an episode like once yeah. of uh, Road Rules. You ever watch Road Rules? Oh, my God. <laughs> we can't start talking about know, Road Rules. I know, We're I know, I know. We're literally in the middle okay. of another podcast. I just want to say really quickly <laughs> that there was an episode of Road Rules where they were on a track driving, I want to say Dodge Neons. It was something like really wow, sure. weirdly specific. And it looked so much fun to me. And that yeah. was when I, was, I really wanted to try and do that. It just looked awesome. And that might have been part of my, yeah, part of my driving so fast in, in Wisconsin because sure. it's their beautiful roads. See? to take fast television does change the way we behave i blame everything <laughs> on mtv <laughs> so we open on this race weekend we're introduced to michael rooker who i can't believe i haven't mentioned yet michael rooker as rowdy burns yeah it's not cold trickle but it's not much better than rowdy burns rowdy is, burns it's just like um, it's somebody in cars that yeah. would be named that right it's yeah, yeah. and his buddy vroom go fast <laughs> 
You mean Russ Wheeler? I do mean Russ Wheeler, actually. Yes. <laughs> Gearshift McGraw. There's a fine line, actually, between Days of Thunder and the movie Cars. Yeah. Right? It's not that fine. To go back to the Paul Newman of it all. Yeah. yeah. What do you think of Michael Rooker in this film as Rowdy Burns? Are you, you're you basically familiar. You have like the pop cultural osmotic knowledge of Michael Rooker. Oh, only you basically. know that he's a yeah. walking dead. You know he's a... Oh, Yondu yeah. from Guardians of the Galaxy. Yes, Guardians for sure. I don't think I knew about Walking Dead, but I've only seen like two episodes of Walking Dead, so that doesn't surprise His me. His thing is basically to play a southern psychopath. I have to admit that I'm generally a little tired of Michael Rooker's shtick over the last sure. 10 years. He has kind of been typecast. I think he's brilliant in this film. I think he's so comfortable on screen. And maybe this hmm. is just because I know him as an actor already. Yeah, it might be. And seeing him in this mode is not something I've gotten to do before. And and yeah, I think he's really good here. Hmm, okay. I'll have to take your word for that. The second character that we see on screen, by the way, the other driver, is Don Simpson. That is his little cameo right here at the beginning. Oh. And the girl right next to him is the girl that he wanted to find Awful. the part. Yeah. Awful. We hard cut out to North Carolina and local Chevy dealer Dayland hiring Harry out of retirement to build a car and start a team. I want to say, I think North Carolina looks awesome. North Carolina it does look really awesome. It looks really beautiful and idyllic. Really I kind of yeah. wanted to just up and get a farmhouse there immediately. There's a bit of a problem in this film, I think, consistently with either color grading or exposure. You yes. notice, I think, a lot of underexposed It feels to footage. me underexposed, yeah. I mean, they just didn't have time to expose it properly. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so grungy. It is. And obviously it's supposed to be. And I mean, NASCAR is grungy in itself, yeah. but it did not work for me. And it's the way I think about the kind of bad i say bad uh, about late 80s early 90s boy movies is that they all to me looked grungy in that way and just like a little bit underexposed a little bit like gritty and ugly on purpose in a yeah. way that just yeah. does not do anything for me yeah a, a little dark a little yeah. i mean we're not quite at like fincher late 90s right. color grading yeah. yet i hate that stuff too we're and on i like the fincher that, even for sure but yes. no, sure and i mean obviously the wachowskis and the matrix you know, sure. kind of redefine what is yes. possible with color grading in yeah. that film <laughs> Yeah, none of that For is my sure. favorite. But it's interesting because we talked earlier about the Tony Scott, The Hunger, yeah, which I really liked. And I can see like bits of the way that he would light things in yeah. this as well, particularly, although it stood out as not matching at all and being absurd. But the hospital scene where we've got all the green and orange light, yeah. which was super Tony Scott, but also like, what movie is this? Now we're suddenly watching Alien or something. Which no, and, Ridley and Scott, yeah. Yeah, that mm. I think though is part of the, the fundamental right narrative incoherence of the film right. is that we, we cut from scene to scene without any great purpose and mm -hmm. we're not building then the connective tissue between these scenes. Right. This is a prime example of that. You know, we've got all of these vivid primary colors of the Daytona race and then we hard cut to... Harry's farm in yeah. North Carolina and it's beautiful like I like it I like but it too. it's doing a tonal thing that I'm not sure is completely completely intentional yeah it it's interesting sense. thinking about the accounts of Brookheimer Simpson town and Scott all fighting on set for all that that is true for all that I am absolutely certain that that is true I bet I would put down good money that Tony Scott did not let anyone touch a camera did not let anyone call action because his directorial vision I think is evident through this entire film the way shots are framed, the way the camera mm, moves. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. I think it's a really strong piece of work, actually. Mm -hmm. So this is where we get our introduction to Duval. We should probably this is where we get our introduction to Duval and to Quaid. In fact, yeah. we talked about how good Quaid is. How do you think Duval handles himself in this film? I kind of love him, honestly. I kind of do. You too. do? Okay. Yeah, I do. Good. I think he's terrific. Not an actor that I have a great deal of 
affection for yeah. honestly just not, not one of my favorites like a very safe pair of hands for sure he plays a similar role doesn't he in gone in 60 seconds have you seen that with nicholas cage I haven't seen Gone in 60 Seconds. So I don't know what Robert Duvall does in that Ooh. film, but I bet it's something like this. I it, would imagine that this is going to set him up for the next yeah. 10 years. He's even in like the coveralls, like the old man coveralls sure. that say like, you know, your name on the right above the pocket <laughs> or whatever. My grandpa used to wear them all the time. That maybe should go on the list for the alternate episode for this because it's a fun movie, if I recall correctly. And it's very vroom vroom in a very fun way. That I remember has... A, a genuinely lunatic cast that has a cast that is even so more stacked people. than this yeah. yes definitely okay. angelina jolie with lipstick that matches her car which is the thing i'm super into and want one day yeah sure but uh, like vinnie jones is in that do you remember vinnie jones the british footballer turned like like Ooh. jason statham before jason statham was around christopher eccleston is in gone in 60 seconds no I say. way i think so <laughs> it's great or rather okay. i remember it being great I and i enjoyed it, it very great. much sure. <laughs> And it had a great chase scene that was fun, which was apparently inspired by a really famous chase scene that everybody knows from maybe something called Bullet. Does that sound familiar? Bullet, Is the Steve correct? McQueen movie? Yes. 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 Okay. Look at me. No one thinks. Very famous. So yes. Anyway, like it's the fun. first modern car chase. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, we should watch that. Let's add it to the list. I love cars. And if you support us at patreon.com mm-hmm. slash next word, then you can vote on which one of the bonus episodes that we propose we will complete yeah. next month. And also, you'll be able to hear this month's bonus episode, the very natural step, I think, from the color of money <laughs> to the extended cut of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. <laughs> yes. We are, as of this recording, recording that tomorrow. And that's going to be a blast. Wild. Yeah. But yes. So I have to say, in general, that I am... Mm-hmm. On board with this movie through this opening sequence with Quaid and Duvall, I think yeah. this is, it's so good. It's so grounded in character. It's so grounded in like, we are, I think, articulating our desires a little too readily. And part of the problem with this film, not being able to mediate between scenes, is that there is no subtext in this film whatsoever. Every totally single true. thing is just said out yep. loud. But this is kind of, there's a kind of melodramatic intensity Yeah, to but that, I like the way they do this. it with Duvall too, with yeah. Harry. I love Harry talking to the cars. Harry talking to the cars is one of my favorite things. I think it's Absolutely fantastic. Like they're yeah. horses. It's beautiful. And it's I love exactly it. exactly like that, right? Yeah. That's, that's clearly what we're trying to evoke. Mm-hmm. We're clearly trying to evoke this like, Word for me. it's an older world. It's a, it's this handcrafted living yes. thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. So it turns out that there's this hotshot young race driver who can turn everything around and make all the difference. He used to drive open wheel racing in the world of Outlaws series. Worse still, he's from California. But when he shows up, it's Tom Cruise, so everyone's that just fine. That was so weird. The line about if you're from California and you're not from anywhere, and he's like, oh, what, is he a Yankee? It's like, who calls a Californian a Yankee? I guess well, this I don't is know. Just, when you're in North Carolina, thing, like right? he's not Southern. I guess NASCAR which I think is, is what like, we're doing. specifically. It's very broadly Southern. I think yeah. there are maybe four races that take place outside of, quote unquote, the South. Like there's wow. maybe Phoenix and Vegas. Yeah, Phoenix was in LA. And maybe there's one more out there that I can't call to mind right now. But wow. yeah, mostly, of course, yeah, it's it's the former South. What do you think of Cole Trickle showing up at the circuit on his motorcycle in his coat <laughs> with all this hair going on? It's so Top Gun again. Maverick riding into Miramar. Like, we're just doing it again. Again, replaying the hits, which I'm kind of fine with. But what I was expecting and what we didn't do and what I thought was really nice and refreshing is I was expecting the same kind of like Maverick arrogance and we didn't get that. We got a really no. humble, insecure guy coming off of that motorcycle. And I thought that was well, interesting. Insecure yeah. might be a stretch. But insecure yeah. might be pushing it. But it's certainly a different kind of arrogance, right? It's a different kind of confidence. He's much yes. more. Because, of course, Maverick, 
as a naval aviator is incredibly technically literate and proficient. Yes. These and planes in the top 1%. do not fly themselves. Yes. Right? yes. Whereas this guy doesn't know anything about cars, as we will learn, mm-hmm. and really is, you know, driving with a natural talent, a natural genius, which we can attribute to Maverick in Top Gun, but that's not really what the text is telling us yeah. about him. Yeah. Is, and let me ask you this question very bluntly, is this the hottest Tom Cruise that we're ever going to get? I don't know. I mean, it's pretty hot Tom Cruise, I guess. But okay, let me ask you this question. Is this the hottest Tom Cruise we've had so you know far? What? No, hottest Tom Cruise is Jerry Maguire, I think. Yeah, that's much more your I don't, kind of I don't, Tom That's my kind no. of hot, I think, yeah. It is wild that in the two years since Rain Man, he has just become a man. He's now just like yeah, adult so Tom Cruise anymore. for the first time. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's very true. And he sure does have good hair. Even in this film, where it's styled pretty poorly. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was 1990. What are you going to do? It's not quite a mullet, but... It's not quite not a mullet. Not, yeah, not quite sure. not a mullet, yep. So he shows up with this uh, inline commercial for how excellent ESPN's coverage of NASCAR is. Which <laughs> felt... And Mellow Yellow. There was a yeah, lot. There was just a lot of people throwing money at this movie. See for people sure. handing checks to other people yes. in the background oh, of the shot there. Awkward. Uh, it turns out, of course, yes, that he is a natural talent, that he's an incredible driver. He doesn't, it turns out, have a lot of respect for authority, but he can drive. Mm-hmm. I love the first driving sequence. I love as he pulls into the pit and hits his marker perfectly the yes. first time with a squeal of brakes. That is it's, nice. It's kinetic visual storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I should say, for all that we talk about loving motorsport and for all that we like driving fast, I'm not like a big car guy, you know? I don't yeah. get excited about like thunderous V8s or whatever. Like it, That kind of yeah. macho bravado associated mm-hmm. with cars and car culture leaves me cold. But this film, yeah, it does manage to communicate something to me that I can be moved by, even if I don't care about it specifically. Yeah, yeah, I understand. I, I do. Yeah, there's nothing hot about this car. I think some of what I like in cars is the design. I do like a really low throaty engine, though. I do. The <laughs> vibrations are very good. <laughs> As we say every week here on the Last Hour in Hollywood, you are the sensualist. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it's hard to imagine. Like, as obviously better as it is for the environment to go completely electronic, it's hard to imagine the same kind of excitement. Yeah. Formula E, the fully electric open wheel racing mm-hmm. division, does have artificial engine sound on the car. See, and I think that's brilliant because that's really what I want. Just like, yeah, just give me the sound. Come on. In what I'm sure is one of your favorite scenes in the entire film, Harry agrees to make Cole a car and we get this construction montage that is shot like it's an Italian cobbler making expensive (laughs) shoes. It's so, yeah, intimate and crafted Mm -hmm. and just really lovely. It's a very different kind of masculinity than the more militaristic masculinity that we saw in Top Gun. Yes. Yes, I think so. I do like the craftsmanship for sure. Yeah. Uh, it is too bad when they unveil the car and it's ugly as sin, I think. But you know what? That's fine. It is, but it, it has a kind of attractive ugliness. Like, you're right. It's it's garish. <laughs> it is garish. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. But it has a certain quality of, of I don't know, a luminosity to it. Bam. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> ka-chow, if you will. Ka-chow. It has a certain ka-chow. <laughs> Before we know it, though, the car is complete and we jump out to Phoenix, Arizona, where Rowdy is testing Cole's nerve on the track. This is where we learn that rubbing is racing, a phrase that is repeated maybe seven times through the course of the thing. Race after race, Cole is hitting the wall, he's hitting the other cars, he's hitting the pit lane. He's, you know, good, but unschooled. That's what we do through this opening montage. The joke about the pit crew being too busy eating ice cream to change his tires, by the way. Yeah. A real event. 
1987, the Southern 500 event, the crew of Hendrix Motorsport could not take their car into the pits because the pit crew was eating ice cream. This is, that's so ridiculous. I don't know. That didn't work for me. I mean, I, I guess they were just, what, hazing him a little bit? No, I think they were having ice cream. <laughs> this is terrible. Bad writing. I don't like it. Even well, if it did really happen. This is a bigger question, right? Yeah. Does this film, though it obviously has a respect for Harry, and it obviously has a respect for the very heroic drivers of these cars, this film does not have a respect for the pit crews, right? It doesn't have no. a respect for the engineers. No, none at all. For the people all. who are doing the work. Well, and also it doesn't... I didn't feel that whoever wrote it did enough research to make me feel like they knew more about NASCAR than I did. Oh, that's interesting. In what way? For example, when he's telling them, you know, don't pass on the outside. And you're like, okay. But then immediately, no, go ahead and pass on the outside. So, okay, already nothing yeah. means anything. And then the whole, oh, I put on special tires. Oh, I'm just kidding. I just said that. for It's just all nonsense. Like, it's the way... I feel like a fifth grader would write a scene about racing. You know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't, yeah. it, it just feels made up. Yeah, I think it comes back to that inconsistency again. There's a version of the story where you can do, we don't pass on the outside on that corner. It's too dangerous. It's yeah. too high. And then at the end of the film, that's what he does to win. Sure. But we just keep setting things up and knocking them down immediately. Like, immediately. Yeah. Every and the whole emotional thing was stake like... in the film is established yeah. and then resolved Usually within the same scene. Within the same scene. I was just thinking when he's like, all right, you tried it on your way and you're eating up the tires. So now you try it our way. What is his way and what is your way? And why aren't you communicating that to us? That's what the film is supposed to do. I think that's completely right. Particularly for a team that gave us very technical things, very technical elements of storytelling in Top Gun. In Top Gun, yeah, 100%. In this film, we don't get any version of the, you know, negative 5G pushover, I was inverted. We don't yeah. get, you know, a very clean metaphorical communication of an underlying principle. Instead, That's we are so shown right. two tires next to each other yeah. and one looks beat up and one's not. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah, it's not as good. Yeah, that inverted shot was awesome. Yeah. That was so cool. We don't get anything like that. <laughs> and then, yeah, and even coupled the with the after-the-fact like, explanation. Squishing them between each other yeah. and like shoving them into the wall just looks I keep saying grungy and I'm sorry but that's just it's just like it's not sexy it's not hot it's not exciting to me it's stupid to me it's like how is this in the rule book like you're just allowed to just just to ram into right. each other where's where's the safety car well, <laughs> you know? and, and this is a really interesting part of like the critical response right mm. as as media literate readers as we are I think that there is an argument, certainly, where you just want to throw up your hands and say, well, it's not for me. It's not It's not about me. I don't care about this film. But fundamentally, that is a failure on the part of the filmmaker. Yeah, I think so, too. The filmmaker ought to be able to communicate to anyone why this matters, why this is cool. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you don't think that this is cool, the fact that you come out of this extremely expensive production that doesn't have to do anything terribly complicated, just has to make racing cars at 200 miles an hour look awesome. I the fact that they fail to do that yeah. for you really does speak to something missing in the heart of the story. Yeah, I think so. And certainly something missing in NASCAR, which, wow, is that a boy <laughs> sport? Well, that's the other thing, though, right? Sports are stories. Yeah, nope, that's true. Right? That is true. We change yeah. the rules yeah. of football to make football more exciting. We change the rules of basketball to make basketball more exciting, to give it more narrative thrust. And if NASCAR leaves you cold, there is a level upon which that is a failure in the narrative construction of the sport. Of the sport. That's interesting. Yeah. Very smart, darling. Again, we're going to get 
something of a, an orphaned narrative thread in this film, but I assume that you like the scene in the bar where Cole confesses that he doesn't know anything about cars, that it really yeah. is natural talent that gets him where he's going. Yeah, it's good. It's good cruise. Yeah. I wish that we had done something with that. I wish yep. that we had, you know, just connected that to the end of the story. But yes, yeah. yes. Although I think that was the first sequence that I was like, why is this so underexposed? Like it was distracting it for me. very dark in yeah. that room. Yeah, no, for sure. So we go through the test with the tire strategy, and then at Darlington, they are off race pace, but at least Cole and Harry are friends now, which happens almost immediately. Mm -hmm. They race, and Cole knocks Randy out of first place and off the track. A chaotic pit stop follows. They line up behind the pace car, and Cole is suddenly back down to third, but that ballsy move around the outside of the back turn wins the race. We hug, we cheer, we celebrate. Turns out that Harry lied about the special tires. Turns out the magic was inside Cole all the along. The whole time. And he's and won again, the race. It's just a and Cars that's movie. the end of the film. That's the thing, right? Like that's that... 35 minutes. We did it, you guys. <laughs> I mean, I think that we would need the crash that's about to come to end act one right before that. And then we get, you go around, you do the ballsy thing, and you win. But then, yes, that's the end. That's the arc that the movie should have had if if you want I to feel. include every plot element that we have in the film as it stands but i think you I cut this film it. off at 35 minutes and you've got a fairly satisfactory episode of that's, television you know that is true that is like true. that's a yeah. fairly time these two guys don't get along no oh, but then they get along and win the race like, <laughs> i've watched much worse episodes of television true. than that mm -hmm. it is maybe a little gray's anatomy but you know <laughs> mm. <laughs> And instead, what happens is that we kind of lose our narrative momentum. We yeah. have this long sequence in the trailer where Harry and Cole are like sharing sob stories. We're talking about our, our trauma and our wounded past. And yeah, John C. Riley is there as the son of the driver who died at Daytona yeah. the previous year. And then they're pulled over by cops mm -hmm. and searched up against the trailer. And it turns out to be a surprisingly ambitious prank. First of all, I'm pretty sure you can get into big trouble for impersonating a police impersonating officer a police in that officer. way. Yeah. Yes. The state patrol, I think, or highway patrol, rather. I'm assuming that everyone else involved was a real cop because otherwise these elaborately provisioned strippers had two cop cars. And yeah, that's surprising. it doesn't make any sense. So I assume so, oh. that it's some kind of buddy of a buddy. Ridiculous. I know somebody who knows somebody yeah. who can make this happen. It's not great. It's not great. It's yeah. not good. Uh, I thought that that was going to be Nicole Kidman at first in profile. But it turns out it was just some other nope. lovely lady. We're just going to spend a few minutes doing something that does doing, not matter yeah. at all. Yeah. So yeah. if you didn't watch the film, it's a stripper, y'all. So, yeah. Well, wait, is she a stripper? <laughs> is she a prostitute? I'm unsure what variety of sex work we have I am unsure here. as well. The boys yeah. just thought you would like me. Yeah. I don't think a prostitute because... What is I, the I don't next think that beat in exactly. That yeah, but like again, you just go into the trailer and is the that back? not the problem with like, the film? Yeah, no, that is the problem. With the Everyone film. is yeah. born into the universe, wide-eyed <laughs> and blinking at the start of every scene. Yes, and comes to a terminal rest at yeah. the end of every scene. Yeah, I have no idea. Not ideal. At the next race, Cole and Rowdy are still racing aggressively. Rowdy tricks Cole into trying to pass him, then knocks him into the infield. Mm -hmm. Cole recovers, charges back through the field, and then a crash obscures the track in smoke. Cole crashes into Rowdy's car. They are airlifted out to hospital where we learn that Cole is blind. Like that's going to be the plot of the rest of the movie, only it's not because it's going to be over in just a minute. But hey, yeah. here's Nicole Kidman looking like the youngest doctor to ever graduate <laughs> med school. She's a real Doogie Hazard in this movie. Yeah, she is quite young. I want to go back to that crash, looks like though. maybe 20. That Let's crash talk about the was crash. actually harrowing. That is intense. And, and yeah. driving through the smoke 
was my my blood pressure went up definitely i love the description that we get from harry much much later in the film honestly too late Mm -hmm. in the film about how unlikely that was to happen yeah about how everyone actually behaved properly you just stay on your line anyone who has a problem pulls into the infield everyone who has a problem gets out of the way and if you are racing the best thing you can do is just keep going and it was a fluke it was a chance Mm -hmm. no one was at fault for this crash which is really interesting it is in the kind of moral schema of the Mm -hmm. film but again ultimately unresolved yeah how does nicole impress you showing up in this movie um miss kidman i think is okay well all right (laughs) Is lovely, I think. She has a real seriousness about her that I really enjoy. She had a kind of no-nonsense, especially for as young as she must have been. Would you say 23? Yeah. 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 I thought she was wonderful. Yeah, and it's distinct from what she's going to do a lot in the years after this film, which is just playing an ice queen all the time, being very stern. Mm, Yeah, I suppose so. There's definitely a warmth here and, and a kind of spontaneity that I like a lot. Yeah. And here we get another outstanding moment where Tony Scott just locks off the camera and lets his people act because we have this sequence where Cole is in the MRI machine. When he gets that line about when I'm driving, I have someone in my ear talking to me. and Great line. It's really good. It's really nicely done. Yeah. And then she kind of warms and says, we'll take good care of him. Yeah. Yeah. That's lovely. That's nice. Then, though, Cole wakes up in his room to find his vision returning. The team comes to visit. Cole takes Dr. Lewicki to be another elaborate prank. And oh, how we laughed. It was the least funny thing I may have ever seen. It was so uncomfortable. Oh, I don't know. Because we follow that up with a really fun joke about how an orderly doesn't speak English and then we race wheelchairs through the hospital. And I said earlier that there's maybe nothing in this film that is actively bad. bad, But yeah, all of this is actively very, very bad. Cole Trickle actually takes the doctor... Nicole Kidman's hand and puts it <laughs> on his She's cock. not Dr. Nicole Kidman. <laughs> well, okay. Dr. L- L- Dr. L- Claire Lewicki. Lewicki. All yes. right. Dr. Claire Lewicki. Anyway, it is deeply uncomfortable and upsetting. It is profoundly uncomfortable. Yes. 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 Yeah. Especially since there were three other men cracking up about it in the room. Yeah. Not funny. Even at the basic level, not at all funny. Nope. And then to- It could be funny if he almost does it and all- the other three guys like- jump on him and like shut the whole thing down like then it's maybe funny i think you're describing a scene that is at best a wash at best best, it's like wow we sure didn't do something terrible there yes we We, uh yeah and no you're right you're right i don't i don't know if there's a way of making that really Uh, funny but yeah it was deeply uncomfortable yeah a real low point for the film for real low point yep cole and rowdy after the fact are warned about their behavior by the president of nascar and harry explains the prank to dr lewicki letting cole off the hook which is kind of nice actually it's a nice moment i I, I especially thought it was nice that the reason harry went to her was he was to tell her you know not only do i want you to not think ill of this kid but also he needs to trust that you're on his side because you're his doctor. Yeah. Which is really quite sweet and thoughtful. It is, though, again, I'm not sure what version of Cole he's talking about. This idea that Cole is this somewhat needy and emotionally like neurotic. I think that he definitely needs people in authority telling him that he's good and doing good. Right? Isn't that his whole thing with Harry? I mean, sometimes. sometimes <laughs> that, yeah. No, for sure, though. That's one of the versions of this film. Yeah, mm. absolutely. But not all of the versions of this film. And even then, setting her up as a figure of authority who needs to emotionally take care of this boy yeah. is maybe not what we ought to be doing with, no, no, no. A, a woman who is much younger than him, 
and be a woman who is eventually going to be a love interest. Like yes. we don't want to not have, even that eventually. Like two scenes. No, from like, now. like really the yeah. next scene when we go to the parking garage. Yes. In fact, and he asks her out. Yeah, I don't want to be handing her the reins to his emotional well-being. Agreed. I think in general Nicole Kidman is done wrong by in this film. Not least of all, ruining her beautiful white suit at the end. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll okay, get there. I'm just saying. Criminal. So, Cole and Rowdy have to go out to dinner with the head of NASCAR because I guess that's a thing you can make your drivers do make them, when yeah. you're ahead of NASCAR. Sure. And you have to make them drive your car. But instead they go and rent cars and we get a comedy chase. This it's entire sequence is awful. just extremely bad. It's so bad. Yeah. yeah. I think I have two separate notes that are just like idiots. This is stupid. It's so like machismo and competitive for just the sake of competition and yeah. endangering so many people. Right. As well, yeah. Not amusing to me. Tim brings in another driver, Russ, played by the excellent Carrie Elvis, Elvis. who is just giving such a dirtbag performance. It's, it's a real Val <laughs> Kilmer performance, right? Yeah. Like it's a real Tom Kaczynski Iceman kind of. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's super good. With his cool girlfriend yes. person yes. who is like so good. Yeah. You don't belong here. It's wonderful. Yeah. Very cool. Much Cole. more Formula One. Get the guy a Formula One car. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, yeah. Cole, meanwhile, manages to persuade Claire to come and see him by applying some leverage to the chief of staff at the hospital, which I guess, okay, I guess, okay. She looks Cole That's over. That's also horrible. Where he, like, figures out her personal phone number. Yeah. No. Gross. Extremely bad. That's yeah. stalking. Leave this woman alone. And then we do kind of hand her some authority. We have the scene in her office where she checks him out and they kiss kind of incidentally as a part of the examination, which I thought was really quite good, actually. Mm -hmm. And then they come out into the hallway. He's asking her what's going on, and she pushes him against the wall and makes out with him. Right. Yeah. yeah. Pretty strong. That's that's pretty strong. It's true. And then, oh, your heart must have gone a pitter-patter, because we know that every woman dreams of a man explaining aerodynamics using sugar <laughs> packets on her leg. <laughs> right? awful. Why do you have sweet and low in bed? What were you doing see this is this is the monkey's paw wish that we made <laughs> i wish they would explain some more about this racing haha well <laughs> drafting yeah and with that i think we can safely say that we have put the worst of the film behind us at this point cole and claire go to rowdy's place to hang out with him and his wife but he's not feeling too good and he's in way deep on this plot of land, I guess. Yeah, interesting. Claire looks him over, and again, here we're fixing the camera. We're just letting these actors act and this giving them a, a nice lot of space, space to too. do it. The yeah. production design in this house is lovely. It really is. Yeah, absolutely. He fails the balance test and falls. She says that he will have to return to the hospital in Daytona. We cut back to the garage and discover that Russ Wheeler has been brought into the team, much to Harry's displeasure. Back in the car at the next race, Cole has a little PTSD from the crash. He panics and blows out his engine, retiring from the On race. Purpose, so now we're yeah. well deep into our second act. We're now seeing the consequences of the first act. We're setting up all of these final conflicts. It is a little odd, perhaps, narratively, structurally, that we switch this antagonism from Rowdy to Russ. We just kind of need someone on the track to embody that which Cole must overcome, I guess. But it works pretty well. And again, Carrie Ellis is just just sinking buckets I every he's moment great. he's on yeah, screen. Yeah, yeah, I think he's great. There's a nice bit of nostalgia for me, too, to see the Hardy's car as well as the Mellow Yellow cars. I mean, like, <laughs> I remember these commercials. I remember that Hardy's cinnamon raisin biscuit in the morning. That was a good biscuit. You're so from the South. I am. It's true. It's Carl's <laughs> Jr. now. What? Claire comes to the race and asks Harry why Cole hasn't gone to see Rowdy. Harry tells her that racers don't want to be reminded of their mortality in 
draft six of yeah. this film, I want to yes. say that what this yes. is really about is overcoming fear. Yeah. Maybe. During the race, Russ blocks Cole in the pit lane. Tensions are high, but Russ forces Cole to the infield and wins the race. Cole returns to the pits, has his tires changed, then returns to the track, deliberately smashing into Russ, destroying both cars and getting them both fired. And I understand why we're here. I understand how we're here. I understand a version of this character who could behave in this way. But the film will not recognize this for the genuine lunacy that it is. Yeah, yeah. For the attempted murder attempted, that it is. Right, yeah. This is so out of kilter with the rest of the film, I think. You, I, yeah, I'm not sure that if this mattered, if this had like real emotional weight in the film, you couldn't come back from it. Yeah. It's only that the film is so incomprehensible in right. its structure. Right, that and that we're this, all just like throwing punches scenes, everywhere. They're yeah. just soap bubbles. You yes. watch it for a second and then it floats <laughs> away and pops. And that's fine because none of it matters. Yeah, it's too bad. Yeah. This really is though the sequence of the film where Cole is suddenly having anger issues because then we get the road rage with the cab driver and horrible the great i mean such a such a red flag so many red such, flags so many red flags yeah. how about the time when he said oh the thing i like about racing is controlling something that can't be controlled <laughs> he looks her right in the eye gross get out of here with that but then she lets him have it after she finally she forces does. her way out of the car yeah i think this monologue is fantastic control is an illusion he is a child Yep. Ladies and gentlemen, Nicole Kidman's a movie star. Like She's great. It's there. She really is. It's true. Yeah. yeah. And of course, you know, she goes back to him, which is stupid, but that's how movies work. That's how movies work. That's how yes. this movie works anyway. Yeah. yeah. We get Cole looking pensively into the middle distance for a while, and then we <laughs> shift gears again into a different version of this film, because now we're back in terrible things happen to good people. Isn't it sad when Goose dies and Maverick is scared of driving? Yeah. Or flying, I guess, in that instance. But, you know, these are very transposable themes yes. here. Because this is when he goes to visit Rowdy, and they really are kind of facing their own mortality. Rowdy tells Cole that he doesn't believe Claire's diagnosis, that he won't go to hospital, and then Cole demonstrates that he is losing his memory, that things are getting worse, yeah. and threatens him with a baseball bat into going back to the hospital. Terrible. And it's terrible enough that his whole family is in the other room, and the baby's crying, and the wife is clearly dealing with everything while he's just shut himself off in his room playing pool. Yeah. Awful man. Yeah. Well, you know. A suffering man, mm. certainly. Maybe we can extend a small amount of, of empathy for him. But yeah, we're clearly not supposed to be seeing him in a heroic light. Certainly. Yeah. yeah. I like what we do in the next sequence, though, because when we visit him in hospital and he asks Cole to drive his car, suddenly he is a practical family man. Suddenly it's about, I need my car to come in fifth in this next race right. or my sponsor won't re-up their commitment. And I am deep underwater on this land that I bought and on right. the house that I'm building for my family. Suddenly yeah. it's this very like, it's just differently inflected. It's a different texture yes. of film. Yes. And I like these stakes. Much more interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I like the mechanics of this a lot. And I like it much more than, you know, a hypothetical version of this scene where it's all about like honor or justice or valor or revenge or some kind of abstract masculine yeah. nonsense, right? It's a very grounded thing. It's rowdy being a good dad and kind of being well, a good man. To. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. way more convincing than any of the stuff mm -hmm. that we saw earlier, I think. Mm -hmm. And at a certain personal cost of letting this, you know, jackass kid who's been showing him up all season get behind the wheel of his car. Yeah. yeah. And there's certainly a version of this that I think is very strong. This is, in fact, in large part what they take for that uh, Saturdays of Thunder Simpsons episode is this part of the story. Uh -huh. But there is a version of this that works. I like Cole leaving immediately and going to Harry and making it clear that I have to do this. This is, you know, a bond. This is a promise. This is a commitment. But I need you in order to do it. And we 
start tying this back to some elements from the beginning of the film Mm -hmm. and it all falls apart. It all falls apart. We get an excruciatingly long scene with Cole and Harry just talking to each other, talking about different strands of the plot, different elements of the theme here. Mm -hmm. And none of them come together. None of them cohere. We're not moving forward. We're just, you know, exploring the space. (laughs) It's a real first day of rehearsal kind of feeling in that Mm -hmm. scene. It's so frustrating because there is a core, there are three different core stories that you could do. Of the stories that are presented to us, right? Racers versus danger and mortality, kind of separating yourself from other people. The idea that Cole is a natural genius, but lacks skill, lacks craft, lacks that technical Mm -hmm. dimension. Or the, you know, rivals to friends, really, it's all the same. It's a brotherhood of the road kind of element. Which of those is the most important to you or, or the most attractive to you as a viewer of this film? Ooh, I think maybe this idea of, of chasing immortality, of avoiding death, but also like being in denial about the danger that you put yourself in. I think that that's yeah. a really interesting dichotomy. On the one hand, you're flirting with death. And on the other hand, you're too terrified to even look it in the eye. It's very interesting. Right. It's that thing of you have to go up to the line so that you know where the line is, but then the line itself is terrifying. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. No, that, I think that's there's something really, interesting really rich there. To me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, that of course is maybe the least gendered of those possible versions yeah, of this plot. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. From here on, the pace of the film picks up, but the comprehensibility does not. We kind of cut back to the track. Harry talks to the car again. We should comment on that because yeah, that's a lovely, lovely that's, scene. That is really and great. And to take care of him is just really good, yes. I think. Yes, and then that's when he sees that it's dripping oil and he's like, this is not the response I wanted from you. It's very yes. cute. It's a, very, it's nice. it's a it's cute charming. scene, yeah. but we don't need to replace the engine with another that we get from Dayland. We don't really need to just confuse things it still further about things. where yeah. his loyalties lie mm-hmm. in particular, I think. But anyway, we cut ahead to that final race. 50 laps in, Cole is dead last. There's another crash, just like before, and Cole drives into the smoke. And hey, it's magically cured of his PTSD. It's like, I don't know, if someone went into some kind of flat spin and then righted themselves. (laughs) And suddenly everything was okay. Yes. Yeah, it's it's no good. Yeah. Uh, Is it just that the Jets are so much more exciting and that death feels so much more imminent? No, I think it's I think it's that death has visited Maverick, right? Like he has experienced and not just death, but loss. He has yeah, lost grief. he has really seen the yes. consequence of his actions, of the kind of activity that he's engaged in. Yes. There's not anything on that scale here. He's Mm-mm. too disconnected from everyone around him, right? He doesn't have a goose. He doesn't have a goose. You're absolutely right. And that's right. a big problem. Yep. And then for the emotional turning point of this film, such as it is, to be an exact and precise recapitulation. Like, yeah. we're even, like, locked off on his face as he is sweaty and the world is getting swimmy around him. It's exactly the same. Yeah, I think, overall, the comparisons between Top Gun and Days of Thunder are maybe a little overstated or maybe a little overplayed. Maybe I have been guilty of doing exactly that myself in this podcast. But this is a one-to-one comparison, except... That Top Gun is grounded in a real and complex and human emotionality. And this is a video game. Yeah. Yeah. It's a nice way to put it. Cole fights his way back up through the pack to the front and finally gets around Russ. But Russ responds by driving Cole into the wall, which pins his accelerator and then spins him into the infield, blowing his transmission. All of this happens so that he can go back into the pit lane in reverse, by the way, which is awesome because his transmission is broken. Yes. Absurd. I really liked 
both the way that that happened and the mm -hmm. fact that we don't draw attention to it. It's just a thing that happens. <laughs> okay. It's kind of cute. And then we get this unnecessary scene of the two pit crews working together to repair the car and get yeah. him back out on track in front of the pace car so that he can do the whole lap and catch up, come through the whole field again. And hey, eventually win the race. Like, eventually just, just win cut the race. To, just eventually win the race. When you come back By to shoot it again months later. not doing the higher turn overtake maneuver right. for which he is so famous. And everyone's talking about how he's going to do this slingshot. He's going to do this slingshot maneuver. I know what he does, but it's still a slingshot maneuver if you go down on I the know, track. It doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. It's, it's just not all connected nope. together. Nope. Perhaps most egregiously after the race, Cole hugs John C. Riley. Because, hey, I guess this was about your dead dad this whole time. <laughs> Aren't you glad I didn't I'm die sorry, like your dad? Aren't you glad? <laughs> We've shared like six words. I know your name. I definitely know your name. I'm not just calling you John C. Riley for this entire recap. That's for sure. And then we go and talk to Harry in a uh -huh. scene that doesn't really land an emotional punch. I thought when he looked over there, Harry would have like died from a heart attack. But no, he Everything was just sitting down taking a breath. Telling it you that just, that's what's happened. It's yeah. so messy. And then Undisciplined. they have a foot race. And I'll say this. Robert Duvall runs like a man half his age. True. Tom Cruise, one of the world's premier runners on film, uh -huh. has not yet figured it out. Hasn't figured it out quite yet. Kind of. There's a little bit of flailing. There's a real goofy grin. Such a goofy grin, yeah. which we just freeze on. Yeah. And that is somewhat antagonistic. Don't forget the part where he kisses Nicole Kidman, oh, Dr. Claire Lewinke. we wanted to talk about Claire Lewinke. Lewinke. Yes. Dr. Claire Lewinke. Let's call her by her formal title. Yes. I'm so sorry. Dr. Claire Dr. Lewinke. Dr. Claire Lewinke. Who wore an incredible white suit to this NASCAR race, which was maybe a mistake, but that's okay. And when Cole Trickle, God, it's a terrible name, pulls his helmet off and his face is half soot. Are we calling it soot? What do you call it when it's... Yeah, I mean, it is I like don't know soot of some yeah, sort, right? Yeah. It's, it's exhaust from Kisses the other cars, her I guess. and gets it all over her, and she's besmirched by him. That's terrible. Do you know the worst thing about this film? What's if they that? get married and hyphenate, Trickle Lewinky. Trickle Lewinky is really that bad. That sounds like a dirty spell from Harry Potter. Dr. Trickle Lewinky. Dr. Claire Trickle Lewinky. my body, Claire Dr. and Cole Trickle, Trickle Lewinky. Lewinky. That's an appropriate note to end this discussion <laughs> of Days of Thunder. We, we have made it. We did something it. of a difficult task, I think, because obviously, yes, the reputation of this film is dire. Yeah. The film itself does not hang together hardly at no. all. We have discovered in the process of moving through this beat by beat story that, yeah, there's a lot in the middle act of the film that is outright bad. Mm -hmm. Where on earth do we put this on the list? God, I mean, it's 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 just mediocre all the way through is the problem. It's got some pretty low moments. You're right. That that low moment with Nicole Kidman, with, with Dr. Lewinke and him just putting her hand onto his crotch was one of the worst things I have ever seen. Plus wheelchair racing, plus rental car racing. Yes, really that was that all bad. Whole, that yeah, whole, yeah, yeah, that whole middle section. His blindness that goes away like immediately, Stupid. even though it's introduced as though it's going to be a major dramatic element yeah. in the rest of the film. And the high note is just what Robert Duvall horse whispering cars basically robert duvall talking to anyone is, yeah. is basically good yeah uh yeah any scene that he's in is better than any scene that he's not mm. in i dare say we do have i think the sex scene itself is so bad because of the sweet and low packets or whatever he's using on her yeah. leg but the makeout in the hallway is genuinely hot and i think good. they have yeah. they have some chemistry here. sure sure i mean it's inescapable that dr claire lewinke is just too good for cole trickle I nascar mean, driver 
Definitely. But I mean, also, Nicole Kidman's probably too good for Tom Cruise, too. So Definitely. I think the world agrees. Know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm feeling like it kind of reminds me with the iconicity, but not very goodness of Risky Business. Where like you watch it and you're like, oh, it's a whole thing that I watched. Well, Risky Business is currently number five on our list of 12. So that's, you know, solidly in the top half. Oh, OK. Above Risky Business is The Outsiders and below Risky Business is Cocktail. Oh, cocktail's an interesting point of examination, right? Because cocktail, the highs are high, but the lows are low. Yes. And probably higher and lower than this film. Risky Business is kind of a good point of of, of comparison, I think, for Days of Thunder, because it, too, doesn't really add up to anything. Doesn't hang together. There are iconic elements, Mm -hmm. but ultimately it doesn't really know which story it's telling but you don't get a is it you know what i mean you don't get like the you do get tom cruise and nicole kidman on screen though and i think that that is true as a 90s power couple are perhaps at least as iconic as a sock slide you're right you're right and i think there's nobody in in risky business that's as good as robert duvall there's there's nobody in risky business that is as good as tom cruise in days of thunder i think that he delivers a really solid performance I think that's fair. So so what do you think? Just put Days of Thunder above Risky Business? Above Risky Business under The Outsiders? Is there any argument at all that Days of Thunder is better than The Outsiders? I don't think that no, there is. No, not that the, again, the Outsiders is such a hard one because I don't think it's a good movie. But I love the story and the book so much. Yeah. But the it, magic of The Outsiders the magi- exceeds it has magic. anything Days of Thunder. Yeah. yeah no, agreed. I think the breaking point between The Outsiders and Risky Business is exactly where this film should go. And it yeah. is the breaking point between This is Special and... This is unobjectionable, but yeah, you know, this this Agreed. is competent, but not yes. really narratively comprehensive. Yes, that's a handshake. There it is. Okay. Days of Thunder, number five on our big list of now 13 Tom Cruise movies. And that is going to do it for this Boxing Day edition of The Last Star in Hollywood. <laughs> the Last Star in Hollywood is a Next Word production. And if you would like to support Next Word and get access to those aforementioned bonus episodes of the podcast, as well as bonus episodes of my genre fiction podcast, Stars and Swords, and unscripted, unedited, behind-the-scenes insider shows in which we do whatever we want we and say whatever and we want and just hang yeah. out and talk to each other. We do that sometimes too. <laughs> yeah. You can get all of that over on the Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash next word and help support independent podcasting delivered free and ad free from us. Amen to, to that. You. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much to our superstar patrons, by the way, and a very happy holiday and happy new year to Louise in Dallas, Leslie Skipa, Megan Louder and Phoebe. So next week, in our first episode of 2024, when the world is shiny and new, we're going to try our luck in the new world with Rob Howard's 170-minute extended cut of Far and Away. Ooh, extended cut. And we'll both be delivering our impeccable Irish accents. (laughs) It's got to be better than Cruises. It's got to be. It's got to be worse. This is a real glimpse into our alternate reality podcast yeah. about Nicole Kidman. Yes. That is yes. absolutely a Nicole Kidman film, also featuring Tom Cruise. I completely agree. Yeah. That's how I remember it. I think it is mostly a very bad film, but I am looking Probably. forward to talking about it. A lot of Anya. We're going to get a lot of... You know, I'm here to yeah, talk about Anya. For sure. Yeah. So that's next week on <laughs> The Last Star in Hollywood. Until then, thank you guys so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Yeah, Cole Trickle is continuing to rub against Rowdy. And I'm like, listen, (laughs) what are we doing?